Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this episode, and I'm very happy to welcome Jimmy Patino today to talk about his new book, Rasasi Migrano, Chicano Movement Struggles for Immigrant Rights in San Diego. This book just recently came out with the University of North Carolina Press at the end of 2017. Jimmy Patino is Assistant Professor of Chicano and Latino Studies at the University of Minnesota. Hi, Jimmy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Laurie. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. I know. I'm so glad we get to talk because um, we've known each other for, what, several years now, right? And Sure. During, um, during grad school. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. And so we've been following each other's work, and I'm so happy I get to talk with you about your book today. Great. So um, I wanted to start by asking you to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners. Um, Tell us a little bit about your professional and your personal background and how you got to the position you are today and also what led you to want to write this book. Great. Sure. Um, Yeah, I I was born in Houston, Texas. Um, My family has has deep roots in Texas and the Houston area and before that in the Texas-Mexico border region. Um, and I think that was really important to my development growing up in the Houston area. I grew up just outside of Houston um, in a kind of semi-rural suburban area where um, mainly African-Americans, uh, European-Americans, and Mexican-Americans kind of went to the same schools and the same spaces. And uh, that was just really important for my development. There were some tensions in relationship to that. And, um, you know, where I found some direction for that was from the stories of my grandparents, uh, who also grew up in Texas and in the segregation era. And um, so that really, you know, inspired me. And, and when I went to college, I went to college at the University of Houston um, for my BA and a, and a master's degree in sociology. Um, I began to kind of follow those questions. I mean, uh, that, that my, that my grandparents had set me off on, you know, uh, my main concern or observation was just their stories weren't really in, you know, the mainstream narrative of, of American history. And my, my initial question was why not? Um, and so I had the opportunity to explore that at the university of Houston. Um, the center of Mexican American studies there was really important. Um, and several mentors there, um, really important to helping me navigate that, um, and just introducing me to the idea of graduate of graduate school and 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 becoming a professor, right? That you could get, you know, it was it was cool to realize you could get paid to read and teach and write about these things, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It blew my mind. Right, right. Yeah, they'll that. pay you for this. So. <laughs> Once I knew it, I was like, I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. No, I really credit. Um, Professors uh, Jack, Jacqueline Hagen, who who is uh, director of the Center for Immigration Studies at University of Houston, and Nestor Rodriguez, um, and some other mentors there at Houston that were really important to again introduce me to that idea. Um, so once I realized that, um, I continued to do a I did a master's degree, like I said, in sociology at Houston, um, and my master's thesis was actually on African American and and Latino. Uh, relations in, in hip-hop culture there in, in the Houston area, which is kind of my experience growing up in Houston. Um, also met uh, Luis Alvarez um, at Houston, and he was on my master's committee. Um, and when I applied for graduate schools, I ended up uh, being able to go to the University of California, San Diego at the same time, or in relationship to him moving 
uh, to the University of California, San Diego. Um, so that's where I went to to graduate school for my PhD. Um, and with the plan to extend my kind of ethnographic research on hip hop to a longer kind of cultural history of uh, Latinos and African-Americans in Houston. Um, but when I got to San Diego, uh, this new archive had been just uh, received by the university there, and I began to investigate it, which uh, became the roots of, of this book. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's how I ended up uh, in San Diego for graduate school. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Your acknowledgments. I always love to read the acknowledgments in in a book, and yours are so lovely, and they kind of encompass your um, you know path to San Diego, all your mentors that you've benefited from and worked with along the way, and just your unique voice that you carry throughout the book. Um, I really enjoyed reading from the beginning who was important to you in your journey. Um, and I this leads me into the first question I had for you, which was about San Diego itself. You were beginning to talk about why you chose to make that the site of study for this book because of this archival collection you were exposed to. Um, But what did you feel was missing from Chicano movement history that you thought San Diego, a more, you know, a deeper study of San Diego could offer? Sure. Yeah. No, it was a real joy to um, move to this new place where I lived for five or six years. Um, and, you know, when I live in another place, like I, I, you know, want to learn about its history and it's, you know, what, what dynamics are there, what makes that place unique, um, which is how I approached Houston, my home. Um, so that was one thing I, I was already interested in that. I, I wanted to root myself a little bit in that, that community and by investigating its, its history. And so, that really attracted me to uh, the Herman Baca papers, which were the, the archive that was received at UCSD. Um, and as I began looking through those papers, what they were—I knew they were about the Chicano movement. That's really all I knew about it, and I knew they were about San Diego. Uh, when I initially started looking at it in my research seminar, right in my first year, and what became very clear very quickly was at least to me, that the main theme was around the issue of immigration um, and more specifically around the way the immigration system was intervening and um, in many ways violently interceding in in the lives of of Mexican origin peoples in San Diego and how that was a a primary problem um, for this group of activists that I was encountering in the archive. Um, and as I began investigating, you know, the existing scholarship to my surprise, there wasn't really a lot of stuff on the movement and its relationship to immigration, uh, particularly in an entire study, right? There were chapters here and there, um, on the movement era and immigration. But, um, so I felt that's one reason I felt it just really important to begin to document those, the stories that I was coming across. Um, I also, uh, Luis Alvarez was my advisor. I very quickly began working with David Gutierrez, who was my co-advisor there at UCSD. And of course his work, um, maybe is the, you know, foremost work that looks at the relationship between Mexican Americans and Mexican immigrants. And, um, that helped me, you know, shape my, uh, 
my understanding and conceptualization of that relationship as I began looking at these archives. Um, and the last thing that I think just was really important um, was, you know, I, I think I moved to San Diego in 2005. By 2006, um, you have some of the largest mobilizations like in the history of the country, right, around um, around immigration, around immigrant rights, around the Sensenbrenner Bill's attempt to, um, you know, make a make a felony uh, undocumented migration status, and even um, assisting undocumented folks would become a felony. I believe in that bill, and so hundreds of thousands of folks all over the country from. Um, uh, you know, from in that spring of 2006, uh, mobilized. And so I also was uh, a part of some of those uh, mobilizations and just, just marching with thousands of people um, around this issue. Um, it just really, um, you know, highlighted how significant the topic was. So I, I felt compelled to, to write these stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you definitely saw it in 2006 while you were there. And your book takes us back to showing us how long and deep the history is of San Diego being this transnational city, this transnational space, and a place in which we can really see how the Chicano movement, um, at least some activists within it, were thinking in transnational ways, right? Um, so I want to, to ask you um about Baca, uh, but also about the other activists in the story besides him. I mean, he's, you know, one of the main characters and people in this narrative. Um, But let's start with your first chapter in which you take readers um, back into the the earlier parts of the 20th century and talking about how um, in the Southwest and California and in San Diego, who were the people who were... um, you know, throwing their struggle in with Mexican immigrants, even if they were U.S. born? And who was calling for that more transnational cooperation and mentality between people all the way back then? Sure. Yeah. No, that that chapter was really important, I think, because um, so the first chapter looks at um, what I'm calling kind of immigrant rights, Mexican-American immigrant rights activism, right, Um, from, you know, the 1930s up to the 1960s where I started looking at the movement era. Um, and of course that chapter uh, is important just to, I think to show the continuity and the, and the changes of course, but some the continuity around that this wasn't the, the sixties and seventies was not the first time that Mexican American activists had uh, really engaged the immigration regime and kind of immigrant rights Um that has these deep roots and, and in the site of Southern California, right. That, that, that these really important manifestations happen. So some of those folks, um, I really center on, you know, the, the, the labor movement of the 1930s as a site where Mexican American activists, you know, were addressing kind of labor issues, workers' rights, workers' issues. Um, but, you know, inevitably engaged kind of, you know, uh, racial inequality and in so doing uh, with the mass deportations that began in the thirties and later in the fifties, right. Um, confronting this system that, you know, marks folks as illegal and um, in different ways um, makes them expendable or deports them. Right. So, um, so yeah, so the, uh, some of the labor movement folks, um, the Congress of Spanish speaking people, you know, I had read through previous scholarship, 
Um, many prolific writers had written about them, Vicky Ruiz, George Sanchez, Dave Gutierrez, um, all these folks. Uh, um, and so they were really important, I think, because they uh, had this idea that migrants were part of the community, right? Part and parcel of the community. And they perceived deportation and kind of the barriers that exist within immigration as an attack on their communities. Um, this is in the 30s, right? So in, in, in the Congress's um, resolutions, um, you know, they're calling for um, some of the things that were called for in the 60s and are still called for today in terms of, you know, moratoriums on deportations, that deportations are inevitably, um, you know, kind of violent inter interventions into families that split families up um, and that they exist as barriers rather than processes which in which people can get standing. Um, and I'm getting a lot of this from the scholarship, right? But um, I just think one important idea that they put forth is that um, Mexican migrants in particular are, um, you know, not only deserve legal standing, but, in, but are owed legal standing for the labor that they contribute into building the infrastructures of, of the Southwest and beyond. Um, I think that was a very powerful kind of position to take, particularly in the 30s and 40s. Um, that really sets a precedent for what the movement era activists could could access, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so folks like Luisa Moreno, you know, was a really important activist. That um, labor union activist, cannery uh, uh, union activist, who purported many of these ideas. Of course, Guatemalan migrant who um, became a union activist all over the country, right? And, uh, many of our colleagues have written about her and, and given us a lot to think about with her. Um, um, Bert Corona, I think, was a really important uh, activist who I identify as someone who mentors Chicano movement activists later. So I, identifying this politics is really important to understanding his continued influence and on, on, on a next generation of, of, of activists um, to be involved in those spaces. Right. So, um, yeah. So those are some of the folks. Yeah. Some of many. I mean, you really do cover a lot of territory and a lot of different strands of activism throughout the 20th century. Um, so it really shows readers, I think, that the deportation regime, you know, a phrase we might be talking about today is actually something that existed long ago. I mean, all the way back in the 30s, they were talking about a deportation regime, or at least um, mobilizing against one, right? So the title of your book, Raza Si Migranol, um, does that have a story in itself? Was When did that phrase come about, and, and what's the story behind the title of your book? Yeah, I thought that was a really important... It was a chant, you know, it was a, a slogan that as far as I can tell, emerged in the movement era, right? In the, in the Chicano movement, which of course was concerned with um, systematic discrimination against uh, uh, Mexican origin folks. And, uh, you know, of course, strategized um, ethnic unity, you know, ethno-racial unity uh, in order to address these, these issues. 
Um, and so, you know, that kind of nationalism, right, that kind of ethnic nationalism, um, I think, engaged um, the immigration system in a way that didn't see immigrants as, you know, as um, tangential, right, to Mexican-American civil rights, but as part of, right, as as part of the same raza, Um and so I, I think the phrase is really important um, as a politics, right? Because that, you know, as I talk about in the book, um, that connection didn't naturally happen, right? The connection that Chicano nationalism meant inclusion of Mexican immigrants. That was a whole complicated process. Um, but I think uh, when it kind of melded together, um, this idea of ethnic unity and this idea of um, immigrant rights, right? Um, it did so through the the conceptualization that migrants were, were raza, right? Migrant migrants were our people, right? They're part of the same community, whether you're Mexican American or or a migrant. Um, and so, yeah, so I thought that phrase was really important for that, and that it came from the movement, right? That it was a slogan, that it was on billboard signs, or I mean, you know, picket signs and, and whatnot. Um, was really important. So I, 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 it was an important kind of way to mark the book, you know, title the book, but also, you know, I call it, again, I call it a politics to, to emphasize that it, it is a ideological and kind of materialist process to identify this shared, uh, this solidarity across difference in legal status, um, which again, doesn't naturally happen and oftentimes doesn't. And even, and then even within you know, kind of raza si migra, no politics. There's still these fragmentations and these challenges in terms of reaching across differences in legal status, differences in gender, differences in, in uh, other kind of internal uh, differences within the community. Yeah, you definitely get into that fragmentation or the difficulties that people encountered in trying to debate or compromise or and just have conversations around whether this solidarity um, was useful or possible. And you do talk about um, Baca and Cesar Chavez, the kind of tension between them. Um, Chavez had his own viewpoints on whether or not he wanted to integrate um, Mexican immigrants into his um, struggle and in the union struggle. You also talk about uh, Chicano Democrats. Um, so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about um, the complicated relationships between those who did want to practice this transnational solidarity and those who were much more reluctant to do so? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think that's a really important part of, of the book and, and uh, you know, kind of a, another um, indicator that I had that this was an important topic was, of course, Herman Baca still alive and well, um, is a friend of mine. Um, and he attended, when I was in graduate school in San Diego, he was a keynote on Cesar Chavez Day. Um, and, you know, at that on campus at UCSD. And I always remind folks up here in Minnesota that we get Cesar Chavez Day off in in in, in California, and they they kind of trip out. <laughs> but um, um, but yeah, so Baca speaking, and you know, he had a relationship with with Chavez, um, and said, you know, history is history. I need to uh, 
say that the first time I met Cesar Chavez, I got in an argument with him. Um, and, uh, I knew at that point that, that, yeah, that, that, you know, he'd, he'd gained my attention even more, right? What, what's going on with that? What is that dynamic? Um, and so he, he, he said, and we got to, uh, talk more about this deep in this and in our oral histories uh, that we did, um, that, you know, his, uh, the, the, uh, UFW was mobilizing in, uh, uh, I think Imperial, uh, Imperial beach. There were some uh, farms down there, which is near the U S Mexico border in the San Diego area. Um, and, uh, there was a meeting where, uh, Baca, uh, Bert Corona was also there and, um, Cesar Chavez and some of his folks uh, were there and just d- detailing this debate that they had that, um, and he was really adamant about, Baca was really adamant about highlighting the conflict, which is interesting. And I, you know, I, I took, um, I took as an opportunity to explore it, right? Because there's other accounts, Bert Corona and his account, um, the Mario Garcia, you know, the testimonials of Bert Corona that he writes, uh, Corona is much more cordial about the, the relationship. He highlights there's, there's conflict and there's difference, but, um, he's much more cordial in, in, in the way he describes it. Whereas Baca was much more rash in the way he described it. He described it as a very clear, a very clear debate, a very clear conflict that, and there were two different sides and they, they were incompatible basically. And, um, and, and the way he described it was Chavez's line was, um, I don't care who they are, you know, undocumented migrants, um, they're strike breakers and, um, they need, you know, they need to be removed. Um, and, uh, um, you know, they're, yeah, they're harming our, our strikes and, course the other side of the debate was you know Baca said he responded well aren't these our people right aren't these also poor people aren't these also workers um and so which kind of highlights uh you know uh the two sides of uh, of that debate um one that 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 was addressing a real problem you know in terms of uh uh, farm work and 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 this the the strategy of strikes right that um, reserve workers that, you know, interrupt the strike, uh, are a real impediment to the goals of, of the group striking of the UFW in this case. Um, and so to one idea to, is to the, to remove them, right. Or to deter them from arriving, right. Which I think, um, proved to be difficult. Um, whereas the other side of the debate, and again, I think that's why I think of the Congress of Spanish speaking people and, and the unions, the CIO unions of the thirties is that to incorporate these folks, um, invite them into the union, invite them into the organizations as part of us, um, was kind of this other side of the debate. And so, um, so that was kind of a story that, that Baca told that, um, introduced me to this internal, internalized debate, right? And I tie, I tie the, um, uh, I mean, where I explore this most is in, you know, that was kind of an anecdotal, uh, story that he told where I explore this most in the book is in relationship to newly elected, um, Mexican American Democrats. 
um, who were elected to the California State Assembly and um, uh, supported um, an employer sanctions bill that uh, the Dixon-Arnett bill in 1971, I think it passed, and it gets debated within the community in 72 during its implementation. Um, but it was around, um, you know, fining employers for hiring undocumented workers, right? Which, um, you know, seems like a, a, an idea beneficial to workers, right? So this, that was the idea that the Democrats had. And I, and I think Chavez's position was tied to the larger AFL-CIO position and the larger Democratic Party position was that to protect American workers um, and their wages, right, and their benefits, uh, uh, foreign workers should be deterred or um, discouraged from uh, being hired, and we should disable the employers from being able to do that. That was the idea around it. Um, But folks like Baca, Corona, um, and others – were against it, particularly because they argued that it would lead to discrimination against uh, Latino workers, um, that Latino workers in particular would be asked for their papers in such a context where employers were being sanctioned for hiring undocumented folks. Um, and they also kind of foresaw the ways that this was really um, identifying the workers themselves, migrants themselves, as the problem, as inherently a problem. And um, so they were very much against that. So that was kind of the um, specific uh, debate over policy that existed um, in the early 70s at the at the state level in California. Um, and. Yeah, so those are really important, I think, debates that were internal. And I and I and I, I call these newly elected assembly members. So Peter Chacon was, uh, I believe, the first Mexican-American assembly member out of San Diego County that was elected in 1970 and there were a handful of others, um, Alex Garcia in Los Angeles. Um, and I, I call them Chicano Democrats because I think that I think they emerged from the Chicano movement, right? In fact, Baca was Chacon's campaign manager for, for, for a time. Um, um, and so, yeah, there's a split that they have between, uh, their, their strategies or whatnot, but it was around, Chicano movement mobilizations that these Democrats become, you know, get elected, I think, um, which shows, you know, that they're part of the Chicano movement, even though they don't agree with these other folks who are part of the Chicano movement around the issue of immigrant rights and inclusion or whatnot. Um, So, yeah, I explore all those dynamics in, in the middle of the book. And by this time, this was an organization I didn't know much about, which you talk about in your book is CCR, the Committee on Chicano Rights. When did that emerge? Was that already in place by the time Baca and Chavez had that interaction or when did it get founded? Um, So the Committee on Chicano Rights. So I should say, uh, so Baca um, is emerging, his activism is emerging in a suburb just south, a working class suburb just south of San Diego called National City. Um, he becomes involved in politics in, in the Chicano movement um, in 1968 through the Mexican American Political Association, MAPA. Um, he creates his own chapter there in National City. Um, and I say him, but there's a group of activists around him. Um, uh, in, in that area. And so in 1968, he's part of MAPA. 
Um, so he's simultaneously a part of MAPA. He also, uh, Corona convinces um, uh, the group there to open a, a chapter of CASA, the Center for Autonomous Social Action, which of course was a, a, a organization that was based in Los Angeles that was um, interested in engaging undocumented folks, providing services for them and politicizing them. And of course they open chapters all over the country. Um, so that happens in the early seventies as well. Um, and so that becomes kind of the roots, those organizations, MAPA, CASA, and then in the early seventies as well, Baca gets involved with the Unida party. So these are all the San Diego County chapter. These are all kind of happening simultaneously at the same time from 68 to 73 or four. Um, so it, as a researcher, it was challenging to parse that out. Things are happening simultaneously, but I break the book up into organizationally to see what was going on in those different spaces, even if it was at the same time. Um, so it's not quite um, the Committee on Chicano Rights is not quite emerged by the time they have those debates. Um, but initially, the the, Chica- the Committee on Chicano Rights um, emerges in response to um, taxi cab drivers were instructed in San Diego. I believe this is 1972 um, to report to the sheriff's uh, department anybody that looked undocumented, right? So um, activists uh, are called up, Abaca, and these activists are are called up by community members who can't catch cabs uh, because taxi cab drivers are afraid to pick up Mexican-looking folks who may be undocumented. And so out of that particular issue, he creates a coalition of, of community groups, and they call it the Ad Hoc Committee on Chicano Rights. Um, and it's specific, you know, ad hoc meaning temporary, right? Its specific goal was to address this issue of um, this concern with undocumented migration and uh, uh, kind of high-level um, repression of folks and how it's affecting the Mexican-American community, in particular, um, uh, this hysteria emerging around undocumented folks being present. Um so it's ad hoc committee on Chicano rights, but then that issue, of course, continues and it, it really becomes the center of their politics. So all those organizations um, by 1976 kind of coalesce into becoming the committee on Chicano rights, the CCR. Um, so yeah, by the mid seventies, it's officialized that that the committee on Chicano rights um, is its own entity, and kind of these other organizations were the precursor to that. Um, so I mark, I mark the emergence of the CCR as an acknowledgement that the immigration regime is a permanent and maybe primary kind of issue that the movement, at least this group of activists, uh, as this group of activists see it, um, you know, that's a permanent part of their agenda, right? And so for the rest of the, into the 1980s, they continued to, to primarily battle this regime. And this is definitely, you know, one of, I'm sure, several precursors to SB 1070 with the whole, you know, do you look like you don't belong here Um, sort of question and freedom with which taxi drivers, police officers can just refuse service, report people, make stops, um, all of them. Exactly. Exactly. And that was what was interesting about 
writing about this topic, this this history, right, as we continue to battle these these policies, right? So the the taxi cab um, memorandum, uh, as it was called, the Duffy Memorandum. Sheriff John Duffy was the one that uh, uh, sent that out, right? The sheriff of San Diego. Um, they pressure him to in that department to rescind that memo. Um, and then soon after, um, San Diego city police, uh, pass a similar or issue a similar ordinance, um, under Pete Wilson, Pete Wilson was the mayor of San Diego at that time. And, um, of course he rises to be governor and, um, you know, uh, issues prop 187 later in the nineties. Um, but the, the activists are, uh, consult, um, the, you know, national level attorney general about it, who, um, informs these departments that immigration is a federal issue and that they have no business basically uh, making, uh, those kinds of policies right, at the local and county level. Um, and so the activists saw it as, you know, uh, a, a done issue, right? The attorney general said it's a federal issue. And so it's interesting how we're still dealing with this, right? We're still getting local police very, in, in many ways, even, even more involved in kind of immigration and identifying who, you know, getting police officers to local police officers to identify who's undocumented, who's not. Right. And speaking of other actors who are, you know, putting their nose into the business of um, immigration enforcement, you would talk about this episode with the KKK trying to join in with the Border Patrol and helping them do their job. Can you talk more about that episode? Sure. Yeah, that was also a very striking moment and that I learned about as I was doing the research. Um, and something that um, the activists themselves remember um, because it was so, um, you know, such a shocking kind of harrowing situation. Um, so in 1977, um, Jimmy Carter is uh, just, is he getting elected? Um, no, he's issued, you know, he got, he got, he went into office in 76. And so 19, by 1977, Carter uh, in late summer um, issues a proposal, an immigration proposal um, for reform to uh, both in part do a lot of things, but in part um, create a, a pathway to citizenship amnesty for a select number of undocumented folks, um, but also increase uh, the border patrol increased militarization of the border at the same time. And I say that cause this is the context in which the, the, the clan members, um, issue their call. Right. So a few months later, um, David Duke, uh, who still is in the news from time to time, it, there was discussion of him and his relationship to the current president. Um, but David Duke was the grand dragon of the national Ku Klux Klan. Um, and he, uh, in again, late in fall of 1977 comes to San Diego to announce the, the Klan's participation in or creation of a border watch program where, you know, they're concerned with, you know, to paraphrase them, the tide of color coming over the border uh, from Mexico in particular. Um, 
and, um, you know, proposed to help the Border Patrol patrol for, you know, incoming migrants and even apprehend them, right? Um, and so, of course, this this sets off a concern from the movement. Um, also, in this context, there had been several kind of violent confrontations between Border Patrol, local police, and um, both undocumented resident and Mexican-American folks. And so this is a very tense issue, particularly in the border issue when this happens. Um, the Border Patrol actually gives the Klan members a tour of the facilities. And the way some of the activists describe that is that the, the, the Border Patrol wasn't as media savvy in the late 70s as it, as it becomes later. And so it was a really, you know, kind of dire mistake that they made in terms of uh, facilitating Klan members to uh, to come see the border facilities and entertain even entertain their uh you know, proposals to help. Um, there's a quote from one official like, yeah, we, we, we will take help from anybody who offers it. Right. And so the activists jump on that, you know, um, by now it's a full fledged committee on Chicano rights. So the CCR is really at the forefront of, um, you know, not only protesting and, uh, decrying that situation. Um, Baca makes an announcement that any, uh, any act by the Klan against, our people, as he put it, will we will respond with an immediate act in kind. So they very much saw it as a um, you know threatening, potentially violent situation. Um, in fact, Baca uh, was uh, his home was uh, sprayed. They spray painted on his home. Go back to Mexico, um, and so um, for a time he was in his home in the evenings and uh, other members of the CCR were patrolling with guns around, around his home um, because of these threats that were being issued um, supposedly by the, by the Klan members or other white supremacists. Woman is so illustrative. I mean, the whole go back to Mexico slogan, it's what people can point to and say, this is what's at stake here. It's not just certain people who this, you know, slogan is directed towards it's anybody of Mexican or Latino descent who is assumed to just not belong in various ways or to not be important or to not be valued. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think interesting about Baca is, is, you know, he traces his family roots to New Mexico and some of the original kind of Spanish settlements of that area. So his family had actually been in what we would call today the United States well before it was part of the United States yeah. or even Mexico. So, um, um, yeah, so this event is really important in that regard. Um, and, and I think what was an important response the CCR had to this was not only to say, you know, the Ku Klux Klan is bad and threatening and, and, and violent, but to tie the, the KKK's position with President Carter's proposal um, and in the way they did that was that just the, the Carter proposal, particularly around the militarization part of the proposal, is not that different than, you know, it's just a, a more covert way of saying that, you know, Mexicans are inherently a problem at the border um, and we need to use, you know, law enforcement measures to control that 
flow of people across the border, right? Which they interpreted that's violent in their experience of that that ten years or so or so of the CCR activist engaging the issue of immigration was that law enforcement solutions to immigration, the, they, their experience in the borderlands was that people die or people get shot or people get beat or people get apprehended or people get um, separated from their families. Um, and so, uh, you know, it sounds um, like a good idea in the proposal in terms of what will just deter people from coming. But they their main point was that a law enforcement way of deterring folks from coming means violence in our communities. And that's not that different from what the Klan is saying. Um, right. Um, and, and that it's, in, it's, it's based in this longstanding kind of racialized notion that um, Mexicans are inherently a problem. And this border region with Mexico is, is, is a problem. We need militarized solutions to solve that problem. Um, so I think that was a very important part of their response, uh, that, that they didn't just respond to the overt racism of the Klan, but tried to tie it to, uh, to more so, you know, quote unquote, colorblind um, uh, policies that end up uh, targeting certain, certain racialized communities. And your last chapter, um, chapter eight, you talk about uh, the Chicano National Immigration Conference and Tribunal. And this was a moment in which the the violence and the pain and the abuse and the trauma that comes um, to people in their experience of the border and the borderlands um, is trying to, you know, talk back to this erasure that can happen if we if we don't address that real pain and violence that's going on there. So, um, could you before we talk about um, your conclusion, can you say a little bit more about that tribunal and what went on there? Sure, sure. So there were two key events in 1980, the um, National Chicano Immigration Conference, and then 1981, the National Chicano Immigration Tribunal. Um, The conference was called um, to uh, invite at a national level um, Chicano movement, immigrant rights, social service, community organizations to come together to basically create solutions to the immigration uh, problem uh, through the lens of people in the community, through the lens of people actually doing that work um, of organizing those communities and, and confronting and responding to systematic violence that was happening to those communities. And that was an important shift, I think, because um, the CCR in particular um, sought kind of official channels of government to solve those problems. They went to their council member, to their state legislator, to their to their federal legislators, right, to try to solve the problem. And through their experience, became radicalized by the ways that those there was there was not an, an, an efficient response to those these concerns around, again, uh, you know, killings and deaths and and violence. Right. So this move to uh, create a conference where the community decides for itself what its priorities are and what its solutions are was an important kind of shift and kind of in a response to the inability or refusal of uh, official channels of government to respond to the, what they saw as a crisis. Um, and so at the conference, uh, you know, they they uh, folks from all over the country come more than a thousand folks come Um and you know a set of resolutions is is put forth 
um, one of which I highlight um, a call to abolish the, the Border Patrol and abolish uh, kind of a deportation-based um, immigration policies. Um, and I think that, again, was a, was a result of, I think, a, a radicalization and experience with the sustained violence that these activists had encountered for at least a decade. Um, so I think it's a very important idea that they come up with, um, the, the idea of abolition of, of the Border Patrol, right? And um, to kind of start from scratch, that it's inherently, that this agency, the INS, they identified in Immigration and Naturalization Services Border Patrol is inherently anti-Mexican. And like, we need to scrap it, right? And I want to say too, that they, that they were in dialogue with, with Black Power activists, with African-American uh, activists, um, in the ways that they began to depict immigration as a system, um, as, as a system of labor exploitation. Um, and, and therefore, that it could not be reformed. It needed to be rid of, needed to be destroyed, right, is, is what they proposed in, in, at this conference. Um, another part of the uh, conference proposed that a tribunal be held so that survivors and folks who didn't survive, but representatives of those folks, could tell their stories and they could be recorded. Right? So a year later, they reconvene, a smaller group reconvenes um, with a kind of um, council that they choose of national uh, uh, Chicano and Latino figures um, where folks testify about uh, the brutalities that they had experienced. Um, so they create a document that, that records these experiences of, of violence. Again, everything from uh, young children uh, passing away because of complications at the border to sexual assault to other kind of, you know, raids in people's homes and families' homes, uh, raids in churches, raids uh, um, at schools um, are all recorded and, and, and put in this document. And... Um, Eventually sent to by now, President Reagan is 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 beginning his term. The uh, tribunal documentation is sent to President Reagan and President Jose Lopez Portillo in Mexico, um, as a kind of testimony of what what deportation based immigration policies kind of uh, do to to these communities. And um, I wanted to talk about your conclusion, which is quite powerful, um, because I think. What I'd like to end on in talking about your book is um, just how much it can inform our present situation. A lot of your book is about, or a major theme of the book is about the compromises and the bargains um, that immigration reformers or Chicano activists have made in the past or are still making in the present moment that miss opportunities to envelop many more people um, in the struggle and as supporters, right? So is there anything you feel... Um, that you'd like to say about the current moment um, in relation to what your book tries to communicate to its audience? Sure. Yeah. No, I think the conclusion um, of the book, you know, explores kind of this moment of, well, in 1986, when the Immigration Reform and Control Act is passed, which, um, you know, gives amnesty to a large number of undocumented folks. It have a very it has a very important impact on on, on society. I think that those uh, I think upward of six million um, folks become citizens through IRCA through this this uh, 
bill that's passed in 86. Um, but which again, also, uh, increases the militarization of the border and, um, kind of leaves, uh, leaves, you know, doesn't address the root of the problem around how undocumented folks serve, uh, important roles in terms of, uh, in terms of labor. Um, and so, you know, movement activists debate, uh, this, you know, coming up to the passage of that in 86 and then the, the aftermath of it. And uh, I, I think it's important because, um, uh, you know, for some activists to, so I, I, I epitomize this through, uh, the relationship between Bert Corona and, and Herman Baca. Corona, again, is this longstanding activist with roots in the 1930s, um, really the mentor of folks like Baca and, and many others. Um, and and uh, they, they somewhat differ um, in their reaction to the passage of this bill, um, where, uh, uh, you know, Corona uh, and his group, the Hermandad Mexicana, take... Uh, you know, used the passage of the bill in order to get funds to educate more people. He sees it as an opportunity to politicize those who qualify for citizenship, right? Um, Baca, in turn, sees it as um, we're working with, you know, you're proposing working with the very group of folks who we just said need to be abolished, basically. Um, in his kind of fiery language, he, he would put it in terms of you're working with the equivalent of the Gestapo, right, to... Uh, to Mexican peoples, the INS is the is the KKK of the Mexican people, right? So, what are we doing? Um, kind of taking funds from that organization, working with that organization. Um, you know, we 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 want to rid of this organization, right? Not um, work with it or whatnot. And I think, and and it's much more nuanced than that. I think, and I, I try to detail that in the book how both sides have important points to make in terms of. Um, politicizing a new generation of folks who who do re- receive citizenship, um, but also um, being critical towards compromise, right? The notion of compromising that some of the immigration regime can stay in place, like this notion that inherently, again, a solution to the immigration problem is law enforcement. Um, I think that's what this group of activists from San Diego uh, they, 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 what they leave is this idea that that is not necessarily uh, implied, right? That's not necessarily the best way to go. In fact, it's very dangerous for uh, the ethnic Mexican community to be subject to such such an idea, right? And that we've accepted it as part Democrats and Republicans alike, and even folks within the activist community have accepted to some degree that deportations are okay or are at least tolerated in order to gain some rights for some other group of folks, uh, for, for, a, for a select few undocumented folks, right? And I think we're still in that moment, right? This politics of compromise where, um, you know, the left, the, the liberal bill, you know, um, that is proposed to be passed that will give amnesty um, still concedes to militarization at some level. And right. We're still, we're still battling that. In fact, um, you know, thinking about how I've talked this out with my Chicano, Chicano history class, um, 
you know, the current moment with DACA, uh, with DACA recipients, and it's it's um, um, the threat on those, uh, the group of DACA recipients, right, has us debating whether folks who came here as children should be citizens or, not, or should be able to stay or not, right, and have access to a road to citizenship, um, which, you know, that's kind of a very narrow way to debate the issue, Um um, we're not talking about how maybe their parents or maybe kind of the root cause of a lot of folks migrating here without papers has to do with labor and with creating a vulnerable workforce that um, is exploitable, right? And so, um, so in many ways, we, we're, we're missing that, um, that part of the debate. We, we can't even entertain that part of the debate as if, if what we're debating is whether you know, folks who were children that came here should stay or not. Of course they should. But beyond that, um, what is this regime doing as a system in terms of how does it, it's always said that the immigration system is broken. Um, these activists were saying, no, it works very well in terms of creating undocumented people so that they can be vulnerable workers. And, and yeah. that part of the debate really, I think, needs to be centered again mm-hmm. and take somebody um strong enough or many people strong enough in order to bring that to the forefront because i think a lot of people want to smother that reality absolutely yes yeah um well i really want to um congratulate you on creating a book that not only gives you know a deeper history of san diego and its its role its very important role in the chicano movement but also a book that can speak to and be interesting to audiences interested in contemporary immigration issues. Um, so it definitely needs to be celebrated, but, um, I was wondering if there's anything new you're working on right now that you're excited about. Sure. Yeah. I'm actually, um, working on an essay, uh, that's thinking about as part of a larger work and the legacies of the Chicano movement where I want to look, I'm looking more nationally at, um, kind of, immigrant rights activism um, after 1986 from, so my main question is, um, you know, the book ends in 86 and kind of with this amnesty kind of demobilizes the movement. Um, But we have these very strong ideas again about abolition, about, you know, the INS as kind of inherently anti-Mexican. I'm investigating what happens to those ideas uh, from 86 to the early nineties, uh, where, uh, important, uh, legislation kind of operation gatekeeper, um, further militarizes the border. Um, um, NAFTA of course is passed that, you know, in, in, you know, encourages more undocumented migration in many ways. Um, you know, what happens to these ideas, um, in between that crucial period to try to bring it a bit closer to understanding how we got to this moment. That sounds great. I can't wait for that. Um, but in the meantime, uh, everybody should check out uh, Jimmy Patino's book, Raza Sin Migrano, Chicano Movement Struggles for Immigrant Rights in San Diego, recently out with the University of North Carolina Press. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. Thank you, Lori. Appreciate it. And thank you all for tuning in to the New Books Network. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this episode. And we've just heard from Jimmy Patino, the author of Rasa Si Migra No, 
um, published in late 2017. I invite you all to like and follow our New Books Network social media pages on Twitter and on Facebook. And thank you for listening.